This is The Global Gambit. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm Piotr, your host. And this episode, we were talking about climate change, COP28, and the relationships to conflict and security. As the episode goes live, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP28, is ongoing in the United Arab Emirates, specifically Dubai. COP is one of the long-standing efforts, collective efforts by the international community to really address the issues of climate change. But as part of it, there are many criticisms and concerns over what and what isn't included, including one specific element relating to climate conflict, fragility, and seeing climate change as a security issue. The conferences have been held annually since 1992, with the intention of trying to limit global temperature rises and adapt to the impacts associated with climate change, mainly in the forms of climate mitigation or adaptation. To dissect these issues, I sat down with Nazanin Moshari, Crisis Group's Senior Analyst for Climate, Environment and Conflict, focusing particularly on Africa. We discussed many different features, including the renowned agreement on the loss and damage fund that was agreed and implemented on the very first day of COP28, before shifting over to specific areas including the need for climate finance and whether the relationship of climate change to conflict and fragile areas can be better incorporated into the implementation and development of effective policies. I began my conversation by asking Nazanin, who had kindly rushed back to her hotel room in time for our conversation during her lunch break, about the atmosphere at COP28 and a little bit more information about the recently agreed loss and damage fund. To say this is my first COP um, and, you know, we have 70,000 people attending, more than 100 um, world leaders in the first few days. Uh, we had literally on the first day, and I have to say an historic announcement uh, about a loss and damage fund being operationalized. Now, the fund intends to give poorer countries financial support so they can rebuild uh, and receive that crucial rehabilitation money after being impacted by climate-related disasters. So this could apply to situations when communities are, you know, uprooted by floods. So it was announced in Shamal Sheikh in at COP27 last year. But this whole year has been spent um, by negotiators trying to operationalize a fund, trying to get it off the ground. And there was basically a, a last minute agreement. Um, this main sticking point was who's going to host the fund. And it was decided that the World Bank would host it for four years as basically an interim trustee and um, you know the fund secretariat. And then we got the announcements um, that there would be some funding, some financing for the fund. Um, and uh, the announcement was totaled around $400 million. I think that's gone up now to maybe um, a bit more than that. Um, but it was interesting that the UAE uh, promised $100, $100 million and the EU promised money as well. Um, what was also interesting was that the US only uh, basically offered 17, around $17 million, considering, uh, you know, what its budget is for, for other, other um, funds. That's really minuscule and tiny. But I was told that uh, the US never really wanted this fund um, and that 
it came round at the last minute, um, mm. and this was just basically a token amount of money. Um, but I think just generally, it, it did launch this COP with very high expectations. That has continued, and obviously we're sort of halfway through the negotiations, um, and there are a lot of other things that are happening at COP, of course, and, and there are other other priorities too. But certainly that basically made the atmosphere, I would say, quite exciting um, at the beginning. Well, terrific. I, I think there's nothing more than a fellow climate activist that we want to see positive news like that. One of the things about the World Bank you mentioned, though, I read, um, is there are concerns amongst members of the Global South for um, its, its stewardess, if you like, and that if it's in the hands of the World Bank for too long, then it will sort of be at the behest of mainly uh, the global north, developed nations, advanced economies, not the countries that need it the most. Um, this is something I think there is this sentiment sometimes that if it's put through the stewardship of the World Bank, it can be it, it, it can jeopardize the allocation of the resources, funding and, and, and priorities. Uh, is that is that a feeling you've, you've had a sense of or, or it's we don't, it's too early to really sort of talk about these things? No, there has been some concern expressed uh, along those lines, I have to say, um, that the World Bank is viewed as the bank of the uh, developed world, the richer nations, and the way that it provides money is usually through loans uh, mm. rather than through through grants. Um, and also, it's a very complex process to apply for that money. So obviously, there is concern among some countries um, you know, how is this going to be operationalized? How will they be able to apply? And will um, countries that are fragile and vulnerable to, to conflict still be able to receive some of that money? And also, the other big problem is the money that has been promised so far is no way near what's needed. If you think about what happened in Pakistan last year with the flooding in October uh, 2022, uh, devastating flooding that will cost the Pakistani economy, I think, between 30 or $40 billion for all the repairs uh, that it needs. Um, and you think about how much money there is in that fund, and that's one country that needs money for one disaster. So we are really talking about billions of dollars uh, that are needed for this fund. Um, so as you said, you know, the allocation, how countries will be able to apply to the World Bank, as well as whether there'll be enough money uh, to support the fund going forward, uh, those are going to be two big issues. I don't think they're going to be resolved during this COP. I think this will have to continue, continue afterwards uh, into the next year. Mm. And and what of the uh, loss and damage fund um, that you mentioned more specifically? Um, is that paving a way for more conversation about fragile areas, about conflict afflicted zones? Uh, obviously, you focus on the interrelationship of climate and conflict. Um, is that paving the way for deeper conversations? I, I have a subsequent question for you uh, about that, um, but just a little bit more on, on bringing this climate security uh, dynamic into the conversation, which I think COP has largely not really touched upon very much in previous years. Um, I, I don't know if it's paving the way, um, but certainly uh, it has been more um, on the agenda here. Uh, and I think 
um, you, you know that there was a a, a peace day um, on December the third, um, which highlighted these links for the first time um, in a sort of thematic program um, at COP twenty eight, and you know, that was really an important first step. Um, and and what happened was, um, you know, the UAE basically brought partners from from different sectors, you know, countries and international multinational natural, multilateral organisations to the table um, to try to build some sort of political momentum on these the interplay, the dangerous interplay between climate stresses and, and conflict. And um, they released uh, a declaration. On climate relief, recovery, and peace, um, and the declaration basically called for your bolder efforts from everyone to strengthen climate resilience, particularly in these vulnerable countries and communities, um, you know, impacted by fragility, fragility or conflict, uh, and you know, the declaration basically was urging. And this is, I guess, linked a bit to loss and damage, but also to generally to climate financing. It was urging climate funds to be speeded up, you know, in the application and processes for these projects to to happen. Um, also in conflict affected countries, um, and it also, I mean, it was really important because it it also highlighted the, the many obstacles there are. The climate financing in 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 these regions, um, and there were some some suggestions over how to get how to overcome these obstacles. But again, again there needs to be a political will, um, and more than a hundred countries, I think, now have have signed the declaration. Um, interesting that that China signed it um, as well as the US, because China has been. You know, they they abstained from a UN Security Council resolution a few years ago, which brought uh, climate security to the table um, at, at the Security Council. So interesting that they signed this this declaration, um, along with many uh, multilateral um, institutions, banks, um, and different organisations, including Crisis Group as well. So, what I wanted to ask you also was about uh, comments that. Um, uh, Comfort Eco uh, said um, about the Climate Relief, Recovery and Peace Declaration, which was quite an interesting uh, gathering and uh, conference. Uh, subsequent, you know, smaller, smaller conversation on the uh, as part of the broader conference. Um, what are the main messages being shared there, and um, what was the general sort of sentiments? Is it are there positive feelings, constructive feelings about uh, this this uh, declaration? Yeah, so Comfort Aero, um, Crisis Group's CEO and president, she, she of course, signed the declaration um, for Crisis Group, and she joined um, several other heads of governments and organisations, um, basically um, in a speech on the stage where this declaration was launched. Um, and he, she talked about, you know, which is, I think is really important, is that, um, that this is an unprecedented step, a really important step, um, because it's the first time that these uh, 
issues have been you know placed on the stage um at a at a sort of thematic level at a cop um which which is progress in itself and but but i think also uh, she made the point uh based on crisis groups research that both climate and conflict they both together have a really deeply harmful impact on the many communities um and vulnerable communities that we speak to during during our research and in order to help people living in these communities we have to not only understand these interlinkages um but we also need to do something about it which is basically trying to get more more money to to these areas um which is still going to be a problem um you know as you know the the promises that were made during um the paris accord of 100 billion dollars a year for for developing nations that's in climate financing and that's every year still haven't been been fulfilled um i think we're about at about 83 billion dollars a year at the moment um and of course you know for this declaration to work um it it's not legally binding it it needs to actually uh provide some substantial changes um and part of that is an increase in climate financing overall um and also an increase in financing to to those vulnerable countries Absolutely. Um, I was listening to the conversation you had with Alan Boswell, your colleague, you know, who hosts the uh, Horn Africa podcast. And um, one of the things I think one of the guests that was part of that little panel you had was um, talking about the need to shift away from the climate finance debate a little bit because it's maybe a little bit too narrow, a little bit too constrictive. Um, is that a sense you're getting from people on the ground in COP that there needs to be a more sort of diversification about how we use funding to support climate related issues, particularly in um, conflict affected zones, fragile areas? Um, any any thoughts on that? No, I, I think climate. I think personally um, that climate financing needs to be at front and centre uh, of the conversation. Um, because without financing, uh, then all the the grand plans that we that we have for building climate resilience and focusing on on adaptation, in particular in the areas that I research, um, I mean, we we need to know who's going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the reality is, and I do agree that the reality is that um, we do need some innovative thinking on this, because um, because clearly. There's not going to be enough public money or money in the form that countries need, i.e. Uh, concessional loans. Um, there are just too many distractions in the world right now, um, you know, economic crises as well. And it's difficult to convince um, countries uh, to and donors to invest in areas that are experiencing climate um, and conflict. And the problem with uh, private investment as well is that, you know, as you know, private investors want want a return on their money, and they're not going to get that 
um, from from adaptation projects. They may get that from mitigation projects, you know, renewable energy, uh, for example, hydropower. Um, but then how are you going to get that kind of investment and even infrastructure into countries that are experiencing uh, experiencing conflict? I think um, you know, Kenya's president, William Ruto, is thinking of, along some innovative lines. Um, and you know, he proposed, this is at the Africa Climate Summit, the establishment of a green global bank, which we, which would be funded by global carbon taxes. And that would help, that money would then be helped to use developing countries fight uh, climate change um, without creating more debt. And then you do have, um, of course, Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados here at, at COP. Um, and she, last, uh, last year, um, she basically spoke about, spoke about the Bridgetown Initiative, reforming the current international financial architecture. Um, and, you know, included in that is, is innovative ways of raising money um, and also de-risking um, investment as well through, um, you know, various means of um, backing up um, foreign currencies. Um, so, there are, I mean, there is a lot of talk on the sidelines here about these innovative uh, ways of coming up with, with financing. Um, but again, the problem really is, is I guess, you know, you need peace um, first, be able to, to invest um, in these countries, uh, but also peace needs development as well. Um, and the, the fact is that, that, that climate change is exacerbating many, many of the pre-existing issues, um, making things worse. So in a way, all of these things need to come at the same time. You need climate resilience, you need peace building, you need security, you need strategies to sort of address these vulnerabilities and you need better governance too. Um, I think one of the things I haven't heard much about here at COP is how to promote better governance, how to promote inclusion, um, how to be more conflict sensitive um, when you're implementing projects. Uh, so all of these things need to go hand in hand. So the last question I have for you, Najanin, is um, um, about this, the, the article you wrote back in September. And given your a lot of your work has been on the Horn, on, on Kenya, and you've got some exciting work on Somalia, which I believe is going to come out relatively soon. So uh, viewers, keep a lookout for that uh, when we have hopefully you back in in the early next year to talk about climate in 2024. But... Um, where do you think this leaves us then with the relationship of um, climate finance to conflict and the prioritization of certain parts of the world? Um, I mean, COP's not over. We've got another week. Um, what are you most looking out for? And what do you think um, people who are trying to keep up to date with everything that's happening, which is obviously a lot, uh, should keep uh, track of as well? Yeah, so I guess one of the things that, is missing, I would say, from this COP, although there have been some um, climate activists here and people from, from the region, from Africa, where I'm, I'm based. I think that um, generally um, what, what's missing is, you know, their voices, the community voices. And I think that there was a bit of criticism of the, the Climate Peace um, Recovery and Relief Pact um, that, 
not enough community voices were were integrated. And yes, you're right. A lot of our research at Crisis Group, my research focuses on speaking to, to communities where climate shocks can escalate tensions or conflicts. For example, in the case of, of Kenya, um, in the Rift Valley, where um, hundreds of people have died in the region, um, partly because of a drought, an unprecedented drought that set off this cycle of violence between herders, landowners, um, between the security forces too. They, they clashed over the resources there, mainly water and pasture. Um, and yes, in Somalia, I've been looking at how non-state armed actors or groups like Al-Shabaab militants can basically use climate shocks either to insert themselves as service providers by you know basically using that to say look we're we're providing food and water um, and the government isn't to try to win hearts and minds or in the case of al-shabaab in certain areas they their measures were so harsh during one of the worst droughts in in living history in somalia and they basically created a lot of resentment um, against the group, and um, you know, was which partly caused the the uprising and the offensive that we're seeing uh, against the militants um, in central Somalia. So I think it's really important to think about uh, these issues when approaching um, COP twenty eight talks. But of course, um, I think one of the big well hopes for me anyway at COP is that this. The agreements that were made in 2015 um, in Paris will be fulfilled. Um, so there will be uh, more money for adaptation and more money generally for climate change um, in countries um, that are fragile. Nazanin Boshri, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time uh, during this very hectic period for many people, but including yourself. Uh, look forward to seeing you back. Everyone, if you enjoyed the video, please give it a like, subscribe, share it around, uh, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. But until then, take care, everyone.